Good evening, ghouls and ghoulettes, and welcome to Killer Horror Critic, the podcast worth dying for. Hosted by the Killer Horror Critic himself, this is the show where guests from all over the horror spectrum join to talk about some of their favorite horror films. So get snugged under the covers, grab a cuddly puppy, and prepare for tonight's blood-curdling episode of Killer Horror Critic. Good evening, horror fans, and welcome to another episode of Killer Horror Critic. I'm your host, Matt. And I'm Chris. And this is a podcast where my wife and I discuss horror films like a couple of drunks at the bar. So (laughs) so maybe you never learn anything, but hopefully you have a good time listening. So before I get into anything tonight, I just want to really quickly say uh, our thoughts are with everybody in Texas right now and just the horror show that is going on there. I am unbelievably upset at leadership (laughs) all around there. And uh, and I also just want to give a nice... Little special shout out to Ted Cruz and say, fuck you. Fuck you, man. <laughs> Fucking asshole goes over to Cancun while people are there suffering. You know, meanwhile, you got Bitter O'Rourke, like, actually trying to do something. Like, just fucking Republicans, man. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I mean, they all suck, let's be honest, but yep. Republicans are worse. That being said, so to- tonight we are continuing our I Put a Spell on You magic and horror theme, and... We're going to be talking about the 1995 film Lord of Illusions by Clive Barker. Uh, very excited to talk about that. Chris, maybe not as much. But <laughs> <laughs> as usual, you have a bit of spoiler-free content first to go through. So as far as releases go this week, honestly, not a lot of great stuff. Only a couple I felt were sort of worth mentioning. Um, so Shook is a film that will be out on Shutter by the time you're listening to this. And... It, it's basically a film from what I, I haven't seen it myself yet, but from what I understand, it's about a like big social media personality uh, who finds herself enwrapped in some kind of like digital game where this killer or killers are picking off people that she cares about and making oh. her perform tasks or whatever. It sounded cool. It looked fun. Uh, our reviewer, Zach Arecki, reviewed it for KillerHorrorCritic.com. You can read his review there. He seemed very much not impressed with it, but <laughs> but to be fair to the movie, I've seen 90% of reviews seem to like it. So, okay. so and, and Zach and I don't always agree, so, uh, so this might be one that's still worth checking out despite what Zach's review says, but I still recommend reading it. But So that'll be on Unshutter by the time you're listening to this. And lastly is a film called The Sinners, which will be out on VOD on the 19th. And this was reviewed by our writer, Tim Byrne, who you can follow. And hopefully I'm saying that right, Tim. It might be Bernie. But uh, but you can follow Tim on Twitter at B-E-I-R-N-E-S-T. And, and Tim seemed to be medium on the film. That's kind of where I felt as well. It's a film about this group of teen girls who... Uh, decide that they kind of form like their own little cult and they decide that they're each going to embody one of the seven deadly sins and then one of them disappears i believe and then it becomes like this mystery and murder and all that stuff i was lukewarm on the film you know because it's 
it's one of those that I feel like is trying to be like the craft, trying to be like oh. Riverdale, you know, trying to be like things like that. And it just doesn't quite get there. But I will also say, you know, it's not a film that's made for me. So, <laughs> so I so, need to watch it. Yeah, you might potentially like it more at least. Uh, I mean, it's definitely not a film geared towards, you know, a middle-aged adult male. So, like, <laughs> but, but that being said, you know, maybe still worth checking out if, if it sounds like something that you're interested in or if you're into movies like The Craft. Although, again, I'm not saying that this is anywhere near <laughs> the quality of The Craft. <laughs> but again, that one's out on VOD uh, by the time you're listening to this. Uh, so... Every week on Twitter, we also like to do a poll, kind of getting your thoughts and reactions to the film we're discussing. So, for Lord of Illusions, where do you think this one falls? Is it love it, it's fine, don't like it, or never seen it? I mean, it's Clive Barker, so I feel like everybody's going to lean towards love it, just because it's Clive Barker. Uh, yeah, sort of, so... <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, love it took it with 41.7%. Uh, 25.8% said it's fine, 4.2% don't like it, and a whopping 28.3% have never seen it. So, really? You know, it doesn't surprise me because there's just like this weird thing that kind of happens with Barker or happened with him that that I don't quite understand where it's like, you know, his first film was Hellraiser, and I mean, that movie was huge, you know, yeah. like that... That, there's actually a famous quote from Stephen King on the poster for that where King said something like, I have seen the new face of horror and it's Clive Barker, you know, something like that. Pretty, pretty yeah, big that's epic. Pretty big deal. I mean, that's a big deal coming from King at any time, but especially like in the 80s when King was really big, you know. I mean, he's always been big, but... And for your first movie. And for your first movie. So, so Clive kind of blew up with Hellraiser, but then... After that, you know, he made Nightbreed, which wasn't very successful, although it does have a big cult following. Like, people like myself love that movie. And and then he made Lord of Illusions, and there was kind of like a bit of a time spaced in between each movie, you know. And, like, I mean, you know, Lord of Illusions didn't come out until 1995, and Hellraiser came out in the late 80s. So you had a few years in between each movie, but... Uh, but for whatever reason, you know, Lord of Illusions and Nightbreed just never were the success that Hellraiser was. I think that both were just kind of too out there for people. <laughs> and, it, you know, because... Too out there in comparison to Hellraiser? <laughs> well, but you got to understand, a Hellraiser, despite, like, the Cenobites themselves are, are definitely a little bit out there. But in terms of just a straightforward horror story, it is kind of that. It's a straightforward horror film. It's full of gore, cool monsters, all that kind of stuff. And, and and it's shorter for one, too. And, you know, it was just like a very new thing at the time. And so people really gravitated towards it. And Pinhead was just this great character that, yeah. that everybody fell in love with. But but at the heart of it, it's got a lot of simple themes. You know, it's a very simple horror film uh, that's done very well and told through an emotional angle and all that. And Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions are, are not that. They're not these straightforward no. horror films. They're very different. They're you know, they're they're both kind of epics, especially Nightbreed. And they just don't fit that mold of like the typical horror film for the time. So I think that while Hellraiser was different, it still was close enough to what people expected from the genre at the time. Whereas Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions, I think they were just so out there that general audiences just didn't connect with them. Because they're also not films that are as scary as Hellraiser either. And 
Unfortunately, when it comes to general audiences, they think your horror movie's bad if it didn't terrify them, so... That's true. <laughs> but anyway, so so I'm not totally surprised by the never seen it, but I will say to the 28% of you that haven't seen it, go see Lord of Illusions. I mean, especially if you're listening to this, but go see Lord of Illusions. It's a great film. I, I personally really like it. It's so, not 100% my jam, but I agree with you. Definitely worth checking out. For sure. So... So we always have a few comments to go along with these from Twitter. So at, I'm just going to spell this one out, at G-W-I-O-N-B-A-C-H says, an underappreciated gem. Love how Barker pulled the concept into the 90s by making it noir adjacent, allowing the horror rather than style to be the focus of the narrative. Great casting and perfect adaptation of the original short story. Uh, I will agree with you that is noir adjacent. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, uh, uh, I I do think that it's an underappreciated film. Like I am surprised that more people haven't seen it um in our polls because I do think that this is a strong film. I have some things with the noir, but that's because um I'm kind of a snob when it comes to noir sometimes. But this is a solid film. Yeah, no, I mean that's the thing that I really appreciate about it. You know, Barker that was his main goal with this movie is he wanted to sit out and do a noir-adjacent film. And, you know, this was kind of around a time where, like, that sort of horror film was becoming more of a thing. You know, there's a few out there around this time period that kind of had that noir style to it or that, like, you know, investigative element of it. But I agree. I actually do think that it does a great job with noir, which we'll talk about <laughs> soon. And I'm going to tell you why, because I know you're going to disagree with me on everything, but... Um, Not necessarily on everything. But but I will also just say great casting, too. You know, we haven't mentioned the cast yet. And uh, there are some actors that I truly love in here. You know, uh, Kevin J. O'Connor plays Philip Swan, who I'll, I'm going to talk about him in a bit. Uh, Scott Bakula plays our main character, Harry Damore. I, I probably said her name wrong, but Famke Jensen, uh, who a lot of you probably know from GoldenEye. <laughs> plays uh dorothea and she's just amazing i love him yes. i think she's fucking great in everything she does um uh, but no it's a great cast and it, uh so the only thing i can't comment on is it's been forever since i've read this short story so i don't recall how well this adapts it but i'll take your word for it so. <laughs> <laughs> uh but anyway thank you i'm gonna attempt this uh guillembach for the <laughs> for the comment really appreciate it uh next up is at cinema tossico so it's cinema T-O-S-S-I-C-O. And they say, an excellent and underrated film by the great Clive Barker. I remember watching this film in the theater, and it was a truly amazing experience. And the haunting lines delivered by Nix, who's our main villain, uh, Touch the Darkness, It's Been Waiting for You, Left Me Chills. I highly recommend this film. You know, I'm I'm going to agree with you that it's underrated. Yeah, and honestly, Nix has some of the best lines of dialogue in this film. I think that's really what makes this film amazing is the dialogue that we have. Yeah, well, per usual, Barker puts... Get, he gives his villain all the best dialogue, which, I mean, mm. is typically the case with these movies. <laughs> and and Nix is played by Daniel Von Bergen, or Bargen, who is also a great actor, so he does a great job delivering these lines. Um but no, yeah, I, I agree. I do think that this is a very underrated film from Barker. You know, to me, and some of you will probably disagree, but to me, I think that in in another director's film catalog, Lord of Illusions would probably be one of their two best movies, right? And unfortunately with Barker, you know, it just it's how it tends to happen sometimes. 
you make one amazing movie like Hellraiser, and that's all everybody ever ever talks about. Yeah. You know, so I mean, it's it's kind of similar with who I've mentioned a few times. It's kind of similar with Carpenter and you know Halloween and the Thing, and then everybody else forgets all of his other great movies like Prince of Darkness or In the Mouth of Madness or whatever. So no, it, it is definitely underrated. Uh, and yes, and Nix is fantastic. So anyway, thank you, Cinema Tosco, for the comment. Appreciate it. Uh, next up is at Dardar Finch, and that's D-A-R-D-A-R-F-I-N-C-H. What's up, Darwin? Darwin's a big supporter of ours. How's it going? Uh, and he says, hard to rate this one because there are a lot of things to love in this movie, but also some things that drag it down a little. It's by no means Hellraiser or Nightbreed, but it's still Barker at the helm, and if you dig his style, you'll at least appreciate this. See what I say? It's always about Hellraiser. No, I'm just kidding, Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> well, you know what? I, this is, I very much agree with, with this sentiment. I think that there's some really great aspects of this film, and there's some things with it that, for me personally, drag it down. But, yeah, it's, it's Clive Barker. If you dig his jam, like, you dig what he does, like, you will not be disappointed by this film. Yeah, 100%. I've already made my thoughts clear on <laughs> comparing it to Hellraiser and Nightbreed, but but no, I, I'm with you, Darwin. I do see what you mean, and it is, you know, those two I do prefer over this, but I still think it's a great movie. Um, and lastly is at M. Sawzall, and that's M-S-A-W-Z-A-L-L. And he says, Scott Bakula was born to play Damore, should have been a recurring character in a bunch of Barker movies. <laughs> have to disagree on this i think that scott bacula does a great job in this film i as a noir fan don't think that he's personally right for the role but that's a personal opinion we'll get into later um, mm. but scott bacula is great so i'm not knocking him yeah so i also don't think bacula is amazing in the role but so I'm, so, I'm not alone so i'm sorry doug <laughs> on that one but i do think that the character himself is great and i do wish that we had seen more of him either in more Barker movies or perhaps a television series, which I, I can't recall if that was at one time a thing. Uh, I, I know that Nightbreed is being worked on as, now as well for a television series, but oh, cool. But no, I, I think this could have easily been that as well. Uh, but I will say, yeah, I think Bakula, while I like him as an actor, doesn't <laughs> totally do it for me in this movie. <laughs> Uh, but I do have I do have speculations on why that is outside of just his performance, so uh, which we'll get into. But before we go to our break, I don't want to forget to mention. So those of you that haven't seen Lord of Illusions, probably should have said this earlier. Uh, it's basically a film about uh, Swan, who he along with a few others are part of this cult that's kind of uh, led by Nix, and Nix is like this powerful being you know and we don't really know much about him and other than he's just very powerful and magical and whatever and he kind of runs this like manson-esque cult and swan shows up with a few buddies to take nicks down and ends up you know blasting him away and then puts this mask over his face which binds his magic and they bury him deep down into the ground and then years later uh nix is quote-unquote coming back a few of his cultists are going around and killing people that were with Swan to take Nyx down. Uh, Scott Bakula gets hired to investigate something that's going on ar around all of this. And then through that, he gets hired by Fumka Jensen to, you know, to investigate more. And like, <laughs> I just, I don't want to get too into it. It is kind of a bit of a complicated setup here, I guess. But, uh, but long story short, it's, it's Scott Bakula investigating the world of magic in Los Angeles in a film noir horror style, dealing with cult members and, and dark magic and this creepy <laughs> Nyx villain and cultist. So 
So it's it's a really fun movie. It's very interesting. And also before we go to break, so the tagline we always like to do our tagline versus the film for this. So so the tagline for this, uh, which I'm gonna tell you right away, makes me laugh. Says, "Prepare for the coming." <laughs> And yes, I'm immature, and that's why I laughed. <laughs> oh, that tagline is special. You know, in terms of referencing the movie, I think it's weirdly kind of accurate because a lot of it is about Nick's coming back and preparing for his coming. For me, this is um not... I think this is a good film. I think that it's it's a good one. I think that it's worth watching, especially if you like Clive Barker. It's not my personal jam but that's also because clive and i i'm not gonna say i have issues with his films because i think he's a brilliant director but you know they're not for me personally and that's okay oh um, nope terrible um, <laughs> <laughs> no, i'm just kidding uh so yeah no i i do really like this film i it, you know it, it is one that i think i could say that i love it's not it's honestly not one that i've watched a ton but i do really enjoy it and i'll just say you know it's because of this like i you know, some of us are just like like. L- let me put it this way: for for my thoughts towards Lords of Illusion or Lord of Illusions and Clive Barker's work in general. As a horror critic, you watch a lot of movies. <laughs> I mean, a lot of movies. Like I watch movies until I have them coming out my fucking ears. All right, like it's <laughs> and and in doing that, I see a lot of boring shit, people. Like, and, and that is not to you know, knock on any of those films or the filmmakers, but I see a lot of movies that just do not leave an impression, right? Mm-hmm. And so in that, when you come across something like Clive Barker's work or like Lord of Illusions that is just so different from what you usually see, you remember it. And <laughs> and, 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 I, and then you like that. So like, even if the movie isn't immediately attractive uh, to you or most people, it, it you know... You you have you have an automatic appreciation for it because it's just different, you know. It, it it like sparks your interest. You're like, oh my god, this is not like anything I've seen before, you know. And to me, that will a- always win points immediately because I just see so many movies that just feel like each other, right? Yeah. <laughs> um. So, so I really like that about Lord of Illusions and and what I love about Barker's work just in general is that you know Barker to me. Uh, he he really loves to explore just some of our more depraved kind of unaccepted desires in society, right? I mean, fucking look at Hellraiser. You know, you got got all these demons dressing like BDSM gear and <laughs> and people like relishing and torture and the pain of it and and like pain equals pleasure and all this stuff. And you know, Nightbreed plays with a lot of those uh, types of ideas. And then Lord of Illusions is all about like the flesh is a trap and like you know, it's just. <laughs> He, he he really gets into like the body and flesh, but it's not. But he doesn't do body horror necessarily. You know, it's no. not. It's not like a. It's not like Cronenberg's approach to flesh, where where Cronenberg tends to look at flesh as, uh, as a disease or a thing that turns against you. Barker is more looking at like the pleasures of flesh. He's always looking at flesh as, as what it's like to be in that vessel of flesh and what flesh is and like the warmth of it and like. I don't want to go on a long ramble about that, but but he 
you know, he really likes to get into, like, the sexuality inherent in horror. Yes. You know, and... <laughs> Definitely agree with that. And and, and to me, I, I just think that's great, because you just don't see... You don't see filmmakers approach sexuality and horror the way that he does, because I think some people, when they think sexuality and horror, they're like, oh, so, like, bordello of blood, right? And just a bunch <laughs> of women walking around with their tits out. No, that's not what I mean. I mean, he actually, like... You know, he actually sort of explores the the feeling of sexuality, you know, like yeah. the like the atmosphere of it and not necessarily the sex itself. So uh, so anyway, so no, I really like Lord of Illusions, um, but that's it. So we're going to move into our break now and talk more about Lord of Illusions when we come back. So if you haven't seen it, it is not streaming that I know of, but I do definitely recommend checking it out because uh, we are going to spoil this movie for you. So other than that, we'll be right back. If you've been enjoying Killer Horror Critic, please make sure to head to iTunes and leave a review and rating, as this helps the show get noticed by others and would be a huge favor to me. Also make sure to check out my Patreon, where you can receive access to exclusive content, such as bonus questions for each episode, extra episodes, and more. To find out details, visit www.patreon.com slash killerhorrorcritic. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you enjoy tonight's episode. All right, and welcome back, horror fans, to our discussion here on the 1995 Clive Barker film, Lord of Illusions. So, as always, just want to start off with who you want to talk about in this movie. I went through the cast and the opener, so I'm not going to go through it again, but <laughs> but who, who piques your interest in Lord of Illusions? See, I want to talk about the one person you didn't mention in the cast, which is Butterfield, played by uh, Barry Del Sherman. Because, boy, do I feel for this dude. Like, I get the fact that he's a villain. He's our assistant. You feel for him? I do. <laughs> like, so he's he's our assistant for Nyx, who's our, you know, our big villain. But Butterfield is so fucking devoted to Nyx. Like, he's in love with Nyx. It's all, you know, that's his whole driving motivation. Mm-hmm. And this poor man just keeps getting shunted for, like, Swan. Like, every single time. Like, Butterfield will show up and be like, Swan's here. He's going to kill you. Like, you want me to deal with him? And Nix is just like, nope. Fuck you, Butterfield. I want to be with Swan. And, like, this dude goes through so much. And, like, look, I get that he's a villain. I know that he's the well, bad I'm guy. Well, I'm just sitting here thinking, like, do you feel bad for Mike Pence? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like he's still an awful person. He's still, so. here's the thing. I, I am not defending anything that he does. Uh, um. But, you like, know, there's nothing redeemable there about is him. Not. <laughs> hey, here's the thing. There's nothing redeemable about Butterfield, but we see this type of character often in, in movies and in horror films. You know, this second in command who keeps getting, like, pushed to the side and everything like that. And I think that Butterfield is one of my favorites because his devotion is absolute and it causes him to be a very specific type of viciousness that I really appreciate. Because, mm. like... Look, the dude is fabulously dressed the entire movie. He's rocking crop tops. He's got like skin tight gold snakeskin like pants. Like his looks amazing. He's very fluid. And I just really enjoy watching his brand of viciousness. That's all fair. I, I can see I can see why you like him. Yeah. I don't see I don't get the feeling bad for him. But but here, I will I will I will add to what you're saying with feeling bad about him to make a case for why you could feel that way if you'd like. So, <laughs> so, so I'm glad you bring this up because who I wanted to talk about is Swan. Uh, and it, and it goes, 
on the surface, it's just because I love Kevin J. O'Connor, that actor. You know, he's. <laughs> Uh, you can also see him in The Mummy. He's like the sidekick guy to The Mummy in that, you know, mm. the the little slimy weasel guy. Um, oh, my God, he is. Yep. Uh, he's also in Deep Rising, which I fucking love, and he's one of the more fun characters in that. So he, he's just a fun actor. He, he's really – I really enjoy watching him, you know, so he always kind of stands out to me a bit. And and I would have chosen Famke, but we're going to talk about her in a second. So, <laughs> um, And I probably keep saying her name wrong, but – the other interesting thing going on here relating to what you're talking about with Butterfield here, something that I like about Lord of Illusions that I'm not I, I'm not sure stands out right away. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But, you know, for those who don't know, uh, which actually Chris didn't know until as of last <laughs> night, uh, for those that somehow don't know, uh, you know, Clive Barker is gay and, and he often tends to approach his films, obviously, from a queer perspective. You know, if you look at Hellraiser, I mean all the Cenobites are very sexually ambiguous, you know, there's yep. not, you know, and, and that's kind of something he tends to do with his villains. They're, they're generally either queer or at least sexually ambiguous, ambiguous characters. And Butterfield is one of those. You yeah. know, I, I definitely get the impression that Butterfield's probably gay, but, yep. but what I like about this movie is that there, there's an undertone of, I think of kind of dealing with, dealing with queerness, you know, and, and dealing with the feeling of, being queer but being afraid to accept it you know and, and i could totally be reading this wrong i mean you know i'm i'm a straight cis male you know so i don't i i there's totally possibility i can read these things incorrectly but but when i look at this movie it almost sort of feels like you know barker was already out by the time that this movie came out so i don't think he was still necessarily dealing with these feelings but but i almost it, lord of illusions almost partially feels like reflection maybe on the frustration of dealing with you know maybe realizing that you're queer and that you know and and dealing with those feelings that come with that right mm -hmm. and, and that acceptance and the reason I say that is that you know so Butterfield you, you obviously kind of can get his connection to Nick's you know there definitely seems to be some kind of uh, relationship there that goes beyond just friends, right? Uh -huh. um, there's definitely some kind of attraction there, at least on Butterfield's side. And with Swan, the whole thing going on with Swan the entire time is, you know, he has this wife, played by Femka, who's really not like, you know, they don't have like your typical marriage. It sort of more feels like they're married because... Femko was this girl that he rescued from Nyx in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it, so, and, and there's very little, if any, sexuality between them. I don't, I don't recall a single moment really where they're like, no, they're like that, you know? No, so, they're not at all. Right. And, and meanwhile, meanwhile, Nyx is kind of obsessed with Swan. Nyx thinks that, spoiler, and we are going to be spoiling the movie from this point on, uh, Nyx thinks that Swan is the only one worthy of his power uh, amongst all of the cultists. Nyx himself has kind of like an attraction to Swan. Mm -hmm. And and Swan seems to have that attraction to Nyx, obviously, which is why they uh, were in this cult together, right? And and the, the nail in the coffin for me for why I think that this is a theme that's going on here is in the end of the film, you know, and I'm jumping way ahead to the <laughs> end already, but, but in the end of the film... You have uh, you have Nyx trying to persuade 
Swan to join him in just destroying the world. And Swan is kind of resisting that and without saying it expresses that he has feelings uh, for Femke. And I I always forget her character's name. Dorothea. Um, Dorothea expresses that he still has feelings for her. And Nyx kind of turns around and is like, how could you possibly still have feelings for her? You know, she doesn't love you. She's sleeping with this other guy. You've lost all your friends, you know, and, and it's almost like he's, it's almost like he's kind of making Swan out to be this monster, right? Like he, you know, he's saying like, your wife doesn't love you. All of your friends have abandoned you. And it's almost like, it's almost like Nix is kind of maybe the queer side sort of like attacking him, you know, and and, and and Swan is struggling with maybe accepting that he has those kind of feelings. So yeah, for me, like the this is a love story. Like this whole movie, the way that I view Lord of Illusions is that it's a love story, weirdly between Swan and Nyx. Mm. Like I, you know, Dorothea is whatever. Like because that's for me. Everything involving Dorothea is weirdly hollow. In my viewpoint, it all comes down to Swan and Nyx and everything with with that. Because look, this whole movie kicks off because Swan drifts away from Nyx and falls for Dorothea. Um, like Nyx steals the girl that Swan loves. Like that's what sets this all off. Like that's why they start down this whole path. Mm. Um, and then you know, yeah, to to your point, at the end of the film. Swan wants their relationship to be so exclusive and complete that, like, even though Swan agrees, like, yeah. Swan agrees to destroy the world with Nick. Swan agrees to be with him until the end of time, knowing that it's going to kill him. He agrees to all of that. And then he looks at Dorothea for two seconds, and Nick's just like, fuck you, you can't look at another woman. Like, <laughs> you can only have eyes for me, and, like, throws a huge fucking hissy fit about the whole thing. So, like, really, for me, this whole movie is about their love story. Um, yeah, and whether bit. it's healthy or not. Well, I mean, so this is this is where, you know, this is where I wish I had a better read on it because, again, I, I don't directly relate to you know th- this theme going on here, right? So, so I don't know what I'm reading accurately and what I'm not. But uh, why I'm a little confused on it is because you know I don't I don't think that Barker would be making this movie to make to make the queer side in Nick's like the villain, right? Like yeah. you know, but. But that's kind of, but that's kind of how it plays. Is Nix is like, and Nix is like that part of Swan that's trying to, that's trying to, you know, pull him over towards accepting these feelings, right? And the end, you know, the end is basically like Swan kind of, you know, in, instead of instead of embracing Nix, like defeats him. So, so that's the part of the read that I'm a little confused on. Is like, you know, does it? Does him defeating him have anything to say about it? Or is that part just kind of like, forget about that and just focus on the relationship itself? You know, but but uh, but but there is definitely that there. It definitely feels like, you know, I mean, to me, Swan is the main character of this movie. It's not yeah. anybody else. Like, and, and it's why it's why the relationship between uh, Dorothea and um, Damore doesn't totally work. No, I, I actually I wouldn't even say it doesn't totally work. It doesn't work at all. No. <laughs> it's, and part of the reason is to me, there's just like no chemistry between <laughs> between Bagula and, and Jensen. Um, there's there's not a lot of chemistry there, but also just you know, 
I'll be honest, I don't really care about Bakula's character. And no. and I think a big part of the reason for that is that Swan is the main character. Swan and Nyx <laughs> are the main heart of this story. And honestly, it has nothing to do with Bakula. I mean, Bakula could have, you know, Bakula's character could have never been hired to do this job and we'd still have the same movie so <laughs> yeah that's my really that's my main issue with this film is that there's a lot of like side pieces going that i don't think add to the film so i guess for me like you know i am curious if and how much there is like a, a queer narrative to this because i'm in the same boat as you i'm pretty heterosexual but like you know, I view the romance as more just it's it's a straight love story, not necessarily making comment about him fighting like his queer side or anything like that, but just a straight up love story between two guys. Yeah, I mean, moving on from that, though, you know, and looking at this relationship between between Jensen and, and Bakula, you know, it's and kind of like the whole noir style of it. So, I mean, first of all, again, I do really like that Barker is kind of implementing this noir style into the film. I think that. The whole idea of kind of investigating the black magic, like, underbelly of Los Angeles is pretty interesting. Yeah. And, I, and I love that approach to it. Uh, and plus, I just love noir films and <laughs> noir horror especially. But, you know, I, what's going on here is, like, Jensen's obviously supposed to be the, the typical femme fatale. And, and she definitely is that. I mean, you know, when you first meet her, for instance, when, when Bakula first meets her, it's at a cemetery and oh, yeah. she's she's dressed all in white, you know, but then as it goes on, she's more and more mysterious and in darker colors. And, uh, you know, so there there's definitely just a lot of that like femme fatale aspect of it. The difference being that usually with a femme fatale, they're a villain. <laughs> <laughs> and and in this case, Jensen is not, you know, so in a, in a way, I don't know if maybe Nyx is like a pseudo <laughs> not not a femme fatale, but you know he, he he also kind of replaces that role a little bit too because he's this cultist leader that's manipulating everybody into following him, right? So it it has similarities to the femme fatale role, but but ultimately it is Jensen that's pulling Bakula into this, as is typical with these movies. It's always, I mean, think back to like almost any noir film you've ever seen. It's you know some alcoholic smoking detective mm-hmm. sitting in his dark and gloomy <laughs> office, and then a hot, beautiful woman walks in and hires him for a job, right? He has to go investigate the, the disappearance of her husband or, or something <laughs> like that, which that ends up being another element playing in is that Swan, you know, dies as far as we know, ends up faking his own death, but he dies as far as we know, and that's how Bakula just gets deeper and deeper into this, right? So I think that that's where they're coming from with this, but what I kind of like about it is the fact that it doesn't work because, <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is that uh, you know, obviously most of these noir films that had come out before this time were made by straight white men, right? Yeah. And and so it's kind of refreshing to have Barker approach this from a queer perspective. And I think because of that, he allows himself to do some things differently with it. Like Jensen is not the villain, you know? She's mm-hmm. not like that that's kind of like a typically male approach to it is that Oh, beautiful women, dangerous, you know? <laughs> and Barker kind of avoids that trope. He he does something different with it. And and, you know, I think I think in a sense it's kind of commentating on how ridiculous some of those stories kind of are because yeah. there is no chemistry between no. the two of them. And the sex scene is like kind of sexy, but also kind of really awkward, you know? Yeah. And <laughs> 
Um, and and their love doesn't really make any sense, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, I think to your point, now that I think about it, I think Nyx is our femme fatale for for the whole film. Because, you know, with Noir, your woman who's dragging you in isn't always a femme fatale, but she is always a mysterious woman with a past that could potentially get her in trouble. And I do think that Dorothea fits that role really, really well. And her costuming is amazing. Like, my main issue with the noir aspect of it, because it hits all the beats. Like, it Mm. hits all the beats of a noir. It's going off and doing all the investigations. It's got, like, the big climatic end. So, like, it hits all of the noir beats. My issue is that Scott Bakula is not enough of a badass or a cynic to be our proper detective. Like, he's a puppy dog. Like, he's a nice guy. And, like, I feel like, and granted, I'm 100% spoiled by Humphrey Bogard. Well, right, but but I mean, and yes, and that's part of the that, that's part of the difference too, right? Mm-hmm. Is is again, like I I don't, you know, I, I don't mean this come out the wrong way, but again, I don't feel like the film is being approached through that typical like male or, or that typical like sh- heavy straight mm-hmm. male viewpoint, right? So you know, so usually when you get that viewpoint, you're getting these male detectives that are like these tough, gruff you know, manly men characters, right? Mm-hmm. And and Scott Bagley just isn't really that. Like, no. he, like he has, he has, uh, he's a little bit gruff in a sense, you know? I mean, yeah, he's attracted to the dark arts and everything, but mm-hmm. but he's not, he's not like, you know, the alcoholic. He's not the chain smoker. He's not the guy who only says two words every chance he gets, right? Like, he's not, he's not your typical noir tough guy. and. Yeah. And I love that about him. And just a quick thought, too, just because I wanted to mention it, uh, bringing up the the death or the the fake death of Swan and and kind of why, to me, this film is maybe exploring his sexuality a bit. It feels kind of on the nose to me that during during the scene where he's spinning and all the swords are dropping, he gets a sword to the chest but the sword that ultimately lands the final death blow hits him in the crotch. <laughs> Does it? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty. <laughs> if it's not the crotch, it's like right above the crotch, you know? And now granted, that's not the one that quote unquote kills him, but, but it is the final sword, the fall that he dies thereafter. So, so to me, I'm just like, what? I'll be honest, this is the film that I haven't had enough time to like really analyze this aspect of it because I really didn't start thinking about it until recently. But but I you know, I just do wonder, like, is there is there exploration of questioning of the sexuality here and, and why is there a goddamn sword <laughs> killing him in his penis, right? Um but anyway, so continue with <laughs> with the, the noir thing. You know, uh, something else that I like that Barker does that that puts a slightly different spin on the noir style is that Noir villains are are typically a little bit larger than life, you know, that kind of feel to them. Yeah. Um but I love that Barker, you know, again being a being a queer filmmaker is able to kind of give us queer villains. Mm-hmm. You know, cuz I I feel like it's you know, maybe it's not good representation necessarily because they're villains, but it but I but it's nice to be able to see on screen these villains that have that kind of approach. I mean, how many noir films do you know of? Where the main villain's walking around in like glittery gold pants, right? Like, it's, fucking love him so much. You know, I mean, it's just great. Like, yeah. it's great to be able to see that and get kind of a different vibe to these kinds of movies. Well, and honestly, for me, that's the aspect I do really like about this film is that we we do clearly have you know queer stuff happening and queer um villains and things like that. But 
as opposed to other films that will have gay people be the villain, their queerness is not what makes them the villain. There's not commentary right. on it. They're not beating. Well, and it's not yeah. the case here either. No, and that's it, that's what I like. Yeah, I like the fact that it's not. We're not doing heavy, heavy commentary. We're just allowing our characters to be more fluid than they normally are in film, and I right. fucking love that. There's well, well, and that's typically the difference between you know a, a cis male director and yeah. and someone who's not <laughs> is that you know cis male directors are the worst at presenting basically anyone that's not a straight white male and making the focus of that yeah their character right so you know it's like like basic what for example like you know if uh if a straight white man is writing about like you mentioned a gay character they're the they're the fact that they're gay is going to be the central theme of their character right well, and, and there's gonna just, be a moment where that character is just like i'm gay by the way just so you know like it, they it's feel gonna the it's need. gonna play into their story somehow yes. and that's just not and that's not the case when no. you when you have someone who actually is gay approaching the story right so so that's why i do love uh seeing barker's approach here is he he introduces those elements but they're not the focus of the movie no or they're not the focus of that character but anyway we gotta move on so Okay, so one thing we haven't talked about this month and this film is perfect for it is, you know, magic and cults. And, you know, how do you feel like that's represented in this film? Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> let me just let me just forewarn that the rest of this episode might piss off people who are who consider themselves Christians or Catholics or whatever or or or, <laughs> or, or followers of the Bible, let's say. So <laughs> now and I want to preface this with just before I go on my rant here, again, I think religion can be great. I think that it is great for people that need it and, and for those who use it for what it's meant to be used for, which is basically just to find inspiration and, and morality and that kind of stuff. So, so this is not meant to be offensive to anyone who does follow the Bible, but I do have my own personal thoughts on it, and yep. you're about to hear them. So... <laughs> So as far as how magic and cults combine. So here's something that I absolutely love about Lord of Illusions. And that is the fact that I actually think that this movie in many ways is a direct commentary on the Bible. And yes. a direct commentary on Christ. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and and if you don't believe me, Nix himself even, or, or not Nix himself, but there, there are moments where they even talk about walking on water like Christ, you know, and how Christ was just an illusionist. Yeah. And so... What I really enjoy about the whole cult and religion aspect, or at least what I find fascinating, is that, you know, to me, Nyx is representative of kind of various religions all kind of molded into one, right? So when we first meet him, you know, he's tossing that flame back and forth through his hands and talking about how, like, the fire spoke to him, you know, and it's very... It's very like Moses like, right? You know, Moses yeah. uh came up with the Ten Commandments through listening to fire talk to him. <laughs> yeah, but he listened to a burning bush. Or, yeah, a burning bush, right. And it, so so that automatically, you know, it's kind of something going on with Nick's there. And then, you know, he's talking about cleansing the world, which is very like apocalyptic religion, you know, and, and how like all sinners need to be vanquished and whatnot. Yep. But really, but really, my ultimate point with it is, is that religion and cults are honestly the same thing. Yes. And the difference is, is that religion is an accepted cult, and what we <laughs> refer to as a cult is not accepted. 
That's honestly the only difference. Yeah. You know, because ultimately at the heart of religion and cults, it's always the same. It's a central figure who everyone worships. Yep. <laughs> figure or, or figures, I should say, but it, it's generally one figure uh, who everybody worships. Their word is law. <laughs> and it, they generally have some kind of power that, like, ooze and awes people, right? And and they are followed by sycophants who, frankly, will do anything and everything for them. Yeah. I mean, we literally just went through one with Trump and are still going <laughs> through it with Trump. I know I said I wouldn't talk about Trump anymore, but goddamn it, he's still on my brain. But <laughs> well, Here's the thing. I think that there's a very apt parallel, you know, talking a little bit about it in the very end. Because um, Nix comes back from the grave and he basically says... I came back, and so I have to give something back to the grave. And he tells his followers, you all just followed me like lambs to the slaughter. You're None of you are worthy. And, like, look, fuck, we're seeing that right now of, you know, all the people who went and did you with the Capitol, and then they're like, well, Trump told us to. And he's like, ah, fuck you guys. Well, sure. I mean, that's definitely part of it. Uh and there is and there is a commentary there on how, you know, these demagogues will always betray you. Like, they're never... Every time. <laughs> you know, and, that, and that's always, you know, that's the tragedy of a lot of cults. And, like, I'm not saying every cult or religion is like this, but, but the tragedy of it is, is ultimately the leader is not doing it for you, right? No. It's always for them. So, so that is definitely a commentary there that does relate to what we saw with Trump at the Capitol. But... But ultimately, the thing the thing that's interesting here is the, is the commentary on Christ being an illusionist, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it got me thinking of like, you know, what really is Christ in the Bible and and Christianity? Like, it's, <laughs> I mean, I, I want I want everyone to just really take a second and think about it, right? Is we <laughs> we, we we have created law, like actual law based around this book from centuries ago yep. that was written by people who claims that these events happened and the events that they're claiming happened are these tricks that sound like illusions. You know, they sound like, oh, Christ walked on water. These guys claim they can do it too, right? Or Christ turned water to wine. These guys claim they can do it too, you know? It, 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 they, they refer to him as an illusionist. And the creepy thing about it is, is like, once you start thinking about demagoguery and cults, and if you start thinking about Christianity and Catholicism as a cult, also think about it this way. The people who wrote the Bible, are they actually telling you the true story? Yeah. Or are they seeing it through the eyes of cult-like followers following Christ, who maybe they say he walked on water, <laughs> But maybe that never really happened, and they just think that he walked on water, or or they wanted to believe he walked on water, or someone told them they walked on water. Uh, and then if you want to go even further with it, imagine that what typically happens with cults, they, they don't want to say a goddamn word against their leader, no. or or the the quote-unquote god that they're following, right? So they're never going to, so they're not going to write poorly about them. Uh, so I doubt that, you know, any of these storytellers in the Bible are going to write a bad word about Christ. And then going even further with that, let's say that maybe they don't fully believe, but they're still part of the cult, and they would be terrified, you know? So are you going to write a bad word then about someone that you're terrified from? Like, no. you know, so so I just, it, it's really interesting how it does kind of combine the two with magic and, and using that as 
as the tool for explaining who Christ was and, you know, the, the whole idea of illusions and heaven and hell and Nick's being this demagogue, right? <laughs> like, it's it all kind of goes together really well because it is just, it, to me, it really is just saying that, you know, every religion is a cult in its own way. Yes. It's just It's just that it's accepted and others are not, you yeah. know? And, and, and before anybody wants to go off on, like, well, nuh-uh, because, you know, Manson was a cult, and Manson made people kill people. Yeah, well, guess yeah. what uh, Christianity <laughs> and Catholicism have a long history of with the Bibles. <laughs> yeah, you've heard of the Crusades, right? Right, exactly. So. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it is, I agree that this is the aspect of this film that I love. And I think that there's a very succinct line that one of the other magicians says when they're having that whole roundtable discussion at the Magic Castle. Um, you've got one of the magicians who straight up says that as a magician, you always are walking the line between divinity and trickery. Um, and I think that's absolutely what religion is, and especially like Old Testament, New Testament religion. It's walking that thin line. What are people going to believe? What are they not? And I think the big takeaway from this is if you are willing to shave your head so close you bleed and then bow down onto like broken glass, you should maybe reconsider the cult that you're following. Potentially. Um, but but so I'm glad you bring up the Magic Castle thing because that that also furthers my point of this idea that. You know, I think it goes even deeper than the fact that uh, a lot of religions that we might worship are are sort of cultish in their own sense. Uh, I, I kind of feel like the film's also making the point that, frankly, cults are everywhere. Yeah. They're, they're honestly, it's it invades every aspect of your life. And you see it with the, uh, with the magicians at the Magic Castle, because over there, they're kind of like their own little cult. You know, oh, they got, they're a cabal of magicians. Right. They, they've got their sort of leader, the, the Brooklyn guy pretending to be grander than he is. Uh, they've kind of got him and he, you know, they all sort of follow him around and he's making comments of like, if you would like to keep my company, you will not say another word to this man or whatever, <laughs> you know, and, and they sort of like worship him. And, and, you know, so it's, it's like this weird idea that kind of stretches to your personal daily life of like. You know, your workplace might kind of be a cult. Yeah. Your friend circles might kind of be a cult. You know, friend circles typically have the one person that most people gravitate towards in that friend circle. Like, it's just... Everything is a cult. Everything is a cult. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it just it just always depends on, like, how far do you take it, right? Yeah. So so that, that's just something I found kind of fun with this. And, and I also kind of like, too, that... It feels like everybody in this film, or, or at least at least in the first half... It feels like a lot of people are also dying by the tools of their religion. Yes. You know, so like Nick's in the very beginning, he's being bound by whatever tool is part of this cult, right? The the guy who Demore finds with all the knives through him, mm-hmm. you know, he he's a guy into tarot and all that, and he actually has like the Ten of Swords cards on the table, and then what do you know? He's got all these knives in him, like the yep. Ten of Swords. Uh, Swan is killed by magic at first, mm-hmm. you know, so... It, 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 so it all, I don't know. It's it, it just kind of making this point, I think, of like, you will suffer for your religion or, or you will suffer for your following her. You know, there's suffering that goes into that. You can die, you can live by the sword and you can die by the sword. I don't know. <laughs> You're going to die by the sword. That's what we're saying. Yes. Uh, anyway, so, so speaking of the Puritan, you know, to you, what is the Puritan? Like, we never actually... 
get an answer, like a straight answer to what Nick slash the Puritan is. So to you, what is he? <laughs> He's a bitch. Okay. <laughs> um, no, I I know that they leave everything really ambiguous with like, you know, is he human? Is he mortal? Like all that kind of stuff. But honestly, for me, like I just think that he's a dude. I think that he is a regular dude who ended up finding some kind of like we see the papers in the the magic castle like the ancient writings and stuff like that so i think that he found a key to these powers and like any dude who gets overwhelmed by power just kind of became a giant asshole about the whole thing um because like he he even makes a comment with it he has a line to dorothea in the end where he says that he's a man who wanted to be a god who changed his mind and he's just gonna be rotten shit now and Mm. like i feel like to what we were just talking about with religion that that's the quintessentialness of any man in power like they tried to be a god. He tried to be a god and tried to be, like, super powerful and went, you know, fuck it. I'm just going to make everything awful now. Um, so, yeah, I just think that he's a dude. I don't want to ascribe him with any more power than that. That's fair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that you could I, – I mean, look, I, I don't think there is a right answer necessarily. Like, like you could, you could certainly be on – to the right answer you know with him just being a guy that's totally that's totally plausible uh because there because there is all kinds of talk about you know uh illusions and trickery and all that and so is he actually powerful or is he just an illusionist or whatever i i would argue he's a bit beyond that considering he comes back from the dead but (laughs) but no i i so so i actually kind of relate this to the second coming of christ (laughs) and you think he's jesus not <laughs> see i don't quite know how to say it but but yeah i think it's totally pos- possible actually so let let me explain why so first of all it, it is established in this movie that there is some kind of realm beyond life you know yes. uh and, and we see that through uh, through Demore's past, where we're told that you know he had this case where there was a kid who was possessed by a demon, and through the rest of the film, he's kind of haunted by it seems the memory of that possession. Like there is actually a demon that seems to be following him throughout this, and you know people are talking to him about how he touched the darker side and whatnot. And so I, I think once you accept that, then I that all I'm really doing is I'm just looking at the similarities between uh between the Puritan and, and Christ. You know, and it's now now here here's here's what I want to preface with. He could also be the Antichrist. He, I, I but there is a relation, I think, to uh to the Christ mythology with Nix, and it comes from the idea that, first of all, uh he's called the Puritan, which straight up just screams of like christianity to me like oh, absolutely <laughs> uh you know and cleansing the world of evil and all that stuff but also you know he he's a little bit sexually ambiguous like jesus i never really saw jesus as one or the other um yeah. and when when swan first encounters him in in the opening he's hanging from that <laughs> from that like rib cage flesh contraption yeah kind of like jesus on the cross Okay. You know, he's uh-huh. kind of, he's kind of up there suspended like that. 
he he is buried and comes back like Christ was buried and came back. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um. So it's. <sighs> You know, it, 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 basically, he just he just strikes me as like, and then you know, look at how he's being treated. He's being <laughs> he's being wrapped in like a white robe when he comes back, and just like Christ wore, you know. And so what I'm saying here is like, look, he might not, he might not be the second coming of Christ, but the film is definitely making him out to be at least similar to that. Yeah, I can definitely and viewed in the same light. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I think. The part you sold me on is the fact that I distinctly remember Nick's waking up in a white loincloth. And I went, huh, that's an interesting choice for costuming. That- yeah. It, no, no, yeah. It, it, there, there are those kinds of representative symbols with it. But, 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 you know, again, it goes back to the idea of Christ being an illusionist, you know, and mm-hmm. that's kind of what Nick's is. Nick's is an illusionist. And, you know, so it's, so I, Again, I don't know that we're saying that he is the second coming of Christ, but, mm-hmm. but but Barker is making a comparison here between the two. Oh, absolutely. You know, he's definitely drawing a line between whatever Nick's and his cult is and the Bible itself. Yeah. So. Okay, I can I can agree with you. He can here, I will concede he can be Jesus Christ, but he can also be a bitch. Well, but also <laughs> fine. But also but also look back at you know, you mentioned the pages that are found. Those pages are of Nick's. Nick's didn't find those pages. They're of him. They're dr- like there's a drawing that looks just like him, you know. And this is some old fucking pages. Yes, they are. They <laughs> look like pages out of the original Bible, don't they? So do you think you that Nick's has just been like wandering around for a while until he found Swan? I think it's very possible. I mean, the the thing just think about it this way. We don't know a damn thing about Nick's. Nothing is ever revealed to us about Nick's. That's true. You know, and so it's it, what I'm saying here is like, you know, there's no right or wrong, but is it plausible that he has been wandering this earth for quite a long time and building his little followings here and there? Of course it is. Do you mean that like Jesus didn't actually die after Easter and those shenanigans and he's just been wandering the entire time? Maybe. I love that <laughs> so much. It's possible. Again, like I'm not I'm not going to say that anything's right or wrong. That's just kind of my read on it is that he is. He has some relation to heaven or hell. So he might also be the Antichrist. I don't know. But it. I think, I think. okay, maybe the best way to look at it is this, is that Christ being a good figure is looked at ambiguously through Barker's eyes. I, I think. I, I think that that's maybe the best way to look at it, is that whether or not he is the second coming of Christ, I think that Barker is drawing that line and making a comparison because he's trying to say that we shouldn't follow people like Christ and Nick's. You know, we shouldn't completely devote our loyalty and belief in people like that because when you do that, you you allow yourself to follow them and, and view them as infallible. You know, like they can do no wrong. And once you give anyone that kind of power... You get eaten <laughs> up by mud. You get Yes, you get your soul <laughs> eaten and, and you're not worthy and all that. The reason he likes Swan is because Swan stands up to him frankly yeah swan has you know swan doesn't just bow down to him swan kind of has his own strength he likes a challenge sure so so you know the idea there it's not to say that christ is bad you know so anyone who follows the bible don't like yell at me for saying that but (laughs) but it's it's just to say i think that you should be careful of the power that you give those figures yeah think critically about your cults 
Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, all right, so we got to start wrapping up. So who is your killer idiot of Lord of Illusions? Oh, Butterfield. Come on, bud. That dude just keeps shunting you to the side. Go be vicious with somebody who appreciates you. Yeah, I mean, I put the cultists who bow down on glass and get their asses <laughs> sucked in the mud. Um, Because <laughs> uh, how dumb you got to be, you know? Yeah. Uh, but all right, what about your killer death? Uh, I have to go with Swan for that one. Look, the dude gets his brain smushed and exploded, and then he gets every piece of him, like, ripped from his bones. That's pretty fucking epic. It's pretty epic. Uh, so mine is, I, I forget the character's name, but he's the... He's the sidekick to Butterfield with the fanes in his mouth. <laughs> oh, I don't think he ever has a name. He might not. Um, but he, I, I put him, and it's not because I think that his death is necessarily the best, because I mm-hmm. do think that Swan is the best. But, uh, but the reason that I like his death is because it kind of touches on a theme that we're going to talk about more in the Patreon, which is that this fane guy, he gets stabbed by, or he gets stabbed through the gut by that, uh, by by basically part of the set from yeah. Swan's <laughs> performance. And it it ends up unloading all this sand that's coming through him, and the blood is turning to red, so it's like all this red sand that's pouring out of him. And, you know, the, one of the big themes of Lord of Illusions is death as an illusion and also time as an illusion. And so to me, it's just, like, very metaphoric to see this guy having, like, actual sand run out of him like a timer, right? Yeah. So, and, and his time has <laughs> run out. The sand is pouring out. He's dead. <laughs> Uh, all right, what about your killer MVP? Uh, so for me, that goes to the costume designer, uh, Luke Ricci, because I fucking love the costumes in it. Because you've got Dorothea, who's very noir in how she's styled, and then you have all the cultists, and I mean this in the best possible way, who are super fucking slutty, and I love them. They're all running around in crop tops, and their shirts are open in short shorts. It's the fucking best, and I love all of their wardrobes. So yeah, costume designer wins. Well, like I said, Glyve Barker sexuality. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, so mine's actually going to go to Barker himself. Uh, so, you know, like I always say, I don't, I don't always love to give it to directors and writers because I think there's a lot of other deserving people. But I will say that if and when we talk about Nightbreed and Hellraiser, he will not be my MVP for those. So I want to give him the shout out here because I think that ultimately, ultimately Lord of Illusions is the movie that it is because of Barker. You know, I don't yes. think that, I don't think that there's anybody that could tell a noir film like this the way that Barker does. I I, ju- I just think that nobody approaches horror and ideas of the flesh and death the way that Barker sees it. You know, Barker, mm-hmm. Barker just, he brings a completely original take to ideas of heaven and hell and the in-between. And, you know, so I, I, ju- I have to give him the MVP because I don't think Lord of Illusions would be anything like it is without him. So, <laughs> yeah. But all right, so that's going to do it for us on Lord of Illusions. So... Going to be moving into our Patreon now, where we're going to talk about a little bit more about uh, Demore's history and why he's got that <laughs> tattoo on his back and <laughs> and all that. And then we're also going to talk about the idea of death as an illusion and the film's concept of flesh as a trap. So if you'd like to hear that, just go to patreon.com slash killerhorrorcritic for just a dollar a month to get access to all of our additional bonus content. Uh, we also do lists of upcoming horror films to check out. Uh, voting for our, what we talk about for our episodes and themes for the month, as well as bonus episodes. So, again, just go to patreon.com slash killerhorrorcritic. Uh, every dollar goes right back to our writers and helps us pay them at killerhorrorcritic.com and keep us going there and keeps the podcast going. So if you can support us, that'd be great. Otherwise, we just really appreciate you listening. And I also want to give a shout-out to our killer members, Ben Scouten, Michael Campbell, 
Martin Anchetta, Seth Vermonten, Kelsey Lynn, and John Reed Adams. Just thank you so much for your support. Uh, we really can't do this without you or anyone else that's supporting us, so just thank you. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about the film Warlock, <laughs> <laughs> and which is like one of the only films that deals with the, the male witch. <laughs> you know, there's so few films that actually touch on warlocks and horror. Yeah, I'm excited about this one. Yeah, so we're talking about that next week to wrap up our Magic and Horror Month. And other than that, that's going to do it for us on Lord of Illusions. So I'm Matt. And I'm Chris. And have a good night, horror fans. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode of Killer Horror Critic. If you'd like to scream with us some more, please subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Killer From Space, as well as Instagram at Killer underscore horror underscore critic new episodes release every friday so keep your eyeballs peeled just the way i like them have a good night horror fans <laughs>